So this is uh, the last talk where I will uh, be here for this session. And that in the, one of the first books which I wrote, that uh, there was a little message on the front uh, which said, it's an old um, saying, I'm not quite sure from where, to grant yourself a moment of peace and realize just how needlessly one has been scurrying around learn to be silent and you'll notice how you talk too much and was learn to be kind and you'll find your judgment of others was too severe and it's one of those sayings which I've carried around with me for most of my monastic life is you have to grant yourself moments of peace they're not given to you on a plate they're not that easy to lose and so when you value peace and give yourself the opportunity to be at peace, then it's there for you at any time, at any place. And there are so many uh, opportunities to be at peace. So much so that I gave them a name. I called them the in-between moments of life. And the in-between moments might be that you're waiting in here for the teacher to come in and give the talk. You have these beautiful moments, it could be one minute, two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, five minutes. And instead of going around thinking and planning, instead of remembering the past or trying to uh, think what the person's going to say, you remain in these moments. You've left where you've come from, you haven't arrived to where you're going, you're in between. And of course, if you travel on transport, public transport, like the train or the buses or taxis, there are many in-between moments which are given to you in life. The train is late, hasn't arrived, or your lift has yet to come. And in those in-between moments of life, is moments, opportunities for peace. For most of us, we just throw those moments away. So, in order to gain those in-between moments of life. We have to notice them, notice the importance of peace and give yourself those moments of peace. After every retreat, people ask, you know, how can we take these teachings and again, put them into normal life? Normal life, I sometimes say, is that life normal? <laughs> so sometimes that we just rush around so much, doing so much, to the point that even though you could say that I have a high achiever, even as a monk, still I make sure that when there's nothing to do, I do nothing. And that's an amazing way of overcoming difficulties. Here's one thing which I learned even here in Devon, in the school where I was teaching, when the old English uh, master, he told me a story that when he was in Burma, not to a meditation retreat, but in the Second World War, as a British soldier. And he said he was not a violent man, but in those days that everybody had to join up, he had very little choice. He had a choice, but not much of one. So he joined up and he found himself sent to the jungles of Burma fighting Japanese. And then he said that on one occasion he was, he was with a group of other British soldiers, maybe six or seven, just a platoon. And the scout who was with them came back and told them the terrible news that they had stumbled inadvertently into a whole group huge number of Japanese soldiers. They were completely outnumbered and surrounded. And this was at war. And so he thought this was going to be the end of his life. He was going to die. A few British surrounded by hundreds of Japanese soldiers. And so he said at the time, and it's something which is well known, that no one knows who will be the hero. 
who will stand up. Sometimes the big fellows, the people who are so strong, they're the ones who crumble in the face of death. And sometimes the smallest people, they're the ones who stand up and show their real mettle. Just like that story which somebody told me from Australia. There was a bar in one of the roughest parts of Australia in Sydney. And it was run by a hell's angel. And it was a place where, where weightlifters and boxers and wrestlers would go to drink. And the owner of the pub had a standing, standing challenge. If he'd squeezed a lemon into somebody's drink, if anyone else could take that lemon and squeeze even one drop out of that lemon, they'd have free drinks for the rest of the night. No one could ever meet that challenge. Until one day, this tiny fellow, thin, short, in a suit, came in there and said, I want to try this challenge. And the Hells Angels, huge guy, said, it's impossible, you're wasting my time. He said, no, I want to try the challenge. And so, the owner of the bar, the bike, he took a lemon and he squeezed and pulverized it until every drop, he thought, of that lemon had come out from that, that uh, fruit. And then he handed it to this, this uh, thin guy. You try. And the thin guy in the suit took the lemon and squeezed it and squeezed it and squeezed it. And to everybody's amazement, one drop came out, two drops came out, three drops came out. And the whole bar of weightlifters and wrestlers and bikies, they were just astounded. He said, who are you? Where do you work? I work for the tax office, he says. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, to go back, so just because you're small and thin doesn't mean you're not going to be the hero. So this fellow is an English teacher. He said, let's fight our way out. Who knows that maybe one of us may get through, but even if we all die, it's a heroic, patriotic thing to do. But the captain said, no. No. We are all going to sit down and have a cup of tea. It was the British Army, after all. <laughs> so that's what they had to do. Sit down and have a cup of tea. It was an order. And he thought this was the most stupid, idiotic order he'd ever heard. How can you think of drinking a cup of tea when you're surrounded by the enemy about to die? That's what they did. Five minutes later, the scout came back and said, put everything away quickly. The enemy has moved. There is something we can do to escape. And of course, that's exactly what they did. Every one of those soldiers crawled through the gap which appeared in the surrounding enemy forces and they escaped and survived. Thanks to the wisdom of their captain. And from that is a very, very wise thing. When there's nothing to do, what should you do? Nothing. When there's something to do, then you're ready. So you can make your way out of danger. Unfortunately, in our modern world, people know how to do things. They're very good at struggling and worrying and planning. So much so when it's time they can do something to be effective, they're tired and worn out. So you know how to do things. In a meditation retreat, we learn how not to do things. How to be poised, like a cat. I mean, that's not a very good Buddhist simile, isn't it? A cat waiting for the mouse. But I think you know what I mean. So. <laughs> That way you can learn 
have to wait. To take these moments of peace. These uh, in-between moments. To rest, relax, not worry. So when you have to do something, you're, you are prepared. I was fortunate in my life to have learned meditation even when I was 18. Fortunately enough that when it came to the final exams at Cambridge, in those years it was really extreme. It was against, I would say, against human rights. It was brain abuse because everything depended on one series of exams. The finals. There was a three-hour exam in the morning, three-hour hour for lunch and a three-hour exam in the afternoon. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday as well. No breaks in between. That was abuse. But it wasn't that I uh, was great at physics or but I knew how to prepare my mind. Every, every lunch hour, I had no lunch. But instead, I went back to my room and meditated. This was in 1972. I had a big breakfast, dinner in the evening, but lunchtime was for meditation. And this is what happened every lunch hour. As soon as I sat down, I started thinking of the morning exam. How had I done? Did I answer the questions properly? Was it right? Should I added more explanation? You all know that once that exam paper has been submitted, you cannot change it. It's done, it's finished. Right or wrong, cannot be changed. We all know that. The past cannot be changed. But how many people are able to let it go? I had to let it go. There was no, it was stupid to think about that. I just finished an exam and it was a lot of hard work. I was tired. I needed to prepare myself for the afternoon exam. And because of training, I had learned how to let things go. Have you ever heard the word ineffable to describe deep, profound uh, spiritual truths about the nature of the world. Ineffable. It's such a weird word that no one can actually say what its meaning is. Even the word ineffable is ineffable. So I thought that's one of the useless words. So of course, you mess around with it and you invent another word. And the other word was ineffable. That the past cannot be ifed. By which I mean, if I'd answered the question a different way, if I hadn't done the exam at all, if I'd have chosen an easier subject, if, 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 many of your past memories are all qualified by ifs. But really, the past is in if a ball. If I hadn't become a monk, what would have happened? What a waste of time thinking like that, because I am a monk. So, when you can let the past go, it means that morning exam for me just disappeared. And then when my mind was free from the morning exam, what was the next thing which I was aware of? The afternoon exam coming in 20-30 minutes time. I was anxious. I was concerned. What might happen in the afternoon exam? Ah! Should I get the books out? Do more studies? Revision? But please tell your children, if they do the revision half an hour before the exam, it's too late. Whatever you look up, just before the exam, never ever comes up. Never. You're wasting your time. But instead I needed to relax. The most important time is now. This is the only time you have. This is where your future is being made. Right now. 
I knew enough to let go of worry about the future. The best way I could prepare myself was to rest in the present. So every lunch I let go of past and future, because I had to. He learned how great that was because the next thing I noticed, once the past and the future had vanished, I was shaking. I never ever thought of myself as a nervous person. I wasn't looking in the right place, but physically I was shaking with the tension of the final examinations. People said that this was really important. You get a good degree from a university like Cambridge and you're set for life. If only, if only I had known I was going to spend my life as a monk, I wouldn't have worried anything. What do you need a degree for if you become a monk? But I didn't know that at the time, so I worried. And as soon as you can feel what's happening in your body, as soon as you're aware of it, you can do something about it, you can just relax. So the anxiety soon vanished. And the next thing I noticed was my brain. My brain was exhausted. I compared it to a tea bag which had already been used and had no oomph left in it. That was my brain. It was exhausted. And all I needed to do was just be with my brain, let it be, not struggle or strive, be still, and soon the energy came back again. It was wonderful. Every lunch hour I did this. Every lunch hour, it was like half an hour to re-energize my brain. So after half an hour of meditation, letting go of the past and the future, being in this present moment, watching how my body is and relaxing it and energizing my brain, every afternoon when I went into the examination room, I was actually smiling. I remember my friends telling me I was the only person, <coughs> the only student who went into the exam room in the afternoon smiling. And they thought I was cheating. <laughs> I suppose I was really, because I had a trick which no one else had. Examination technique. And that's of course why I did very well. Simple things of life. You have to face the biopsy report, the interview for the, the new job, uh, very tense whatever you have to do. There's great ways you can use these, what you learn in meditation all things in your life. Also you can use your meditation uh, training not just to let go but also to be sensitive to what's happening around. And sometimes that people think so much they see so little. One of my heroes when I was a young man was a gentleman who's a very great philosopher, English philosopher he lived in Sussex, or the, no, was it Sussex or Surrey? I think it's of, uh, in East Sussex. There's a, a great little fellow called Winnie the Pooh. And he said, <laughs> he said, I have very little brain, which is why he was so wise. He was a fellow who was walking through the wood. And as he was walking through the wood with his friend Piglet, there was a storm, just like a few days ago. And they were still a long way from home. And the trees were swaying. Leaves were falling down. Then branches were falling down. And then whole trees were coming smash onto the ground. And little piglets, like many small people, were very vulnerable. And poor Piglet was getting more and more anxious. He was holding on to his friend Pooh's paw harder and harder and harder until little Piglet stopped and said, Pooh, Pooh, I cannot go on any longer. I'm so scared. What would happen if a tree fell when we were underneath it? That was a possibility. 
and even Winnie the Pooh was scared, but only for a second. And then his natural wisdom kicked in and he replied, you ask, what would happen if a tree fell when we were underneath it? What would happen if it didn't fall when we were, un we, when we were underneath it? And with that, positive thinking, because he's poo. <laughs> <laughs> then, all the fear left. All your anxiety, all the fear of the future. What would happen if? Followed by something terrible. And the answer is, what would happen if it didn't? Which was far more likely. And so I love little uh, wise experiences like that. All the great wisdom of seeing things with a positive mind. Seeing other parts of life. Not just the negative part. This is what one learns when one even meditates. Later on in meditation, you know, we're always trying to get something. But when we are still, we're not getting anything. We're just being here. Very often, because I travel around a lot, very often you go to these big cities like uh, San Francisco, New York, London. In all of those cities, it's very rare to see a human being. All I ever see are human goings, human doings, not just human beings, who are taking advantage of the space the in-between moments of life and just enjoying what's right in front of you right now. You're just stopping and being. You're all going somewhere. So where are you going? You know where I'm going. I'm leaving here this afternoon and then, well, I've got a few stops in between. But eventually I'm going to the crematorium where I'll end up in a box. And so they always say, think outside the box. You know, and that reminds me of, of one of these. You know, some life is even more fun than sort of jokes which are made up. In sort of my job, one of the things which I do is again not just marriages but funerals. It's a wonderful thing as a Buddhist. You know, you don't just give a, a cradle to grave service. You do a before the cradle to beyond the grave. You know, we do ghost busting. <laughs> so, <laughs> before the cradle to beyond the grave. And of course, you know, Buddhists are just, they're much more knowledgeable about what happens at death and beyond. Much more knowledgeable than Christians. You know why? Because Christians only die once. We Buddhists, we die many times. So, by experience, we must be more <laughs> knowledgeable about death. But anyway, <laughs> so I was. Uh, I don't know if you've been to the funerals over here, in, especially um, if it's going to be uh, burials. They actually go in procession. They usually have the funeral director and the priest or the monk or something, the nun. We walk ahead of the hearse, then you have the hearse, then you have the mourners coming behind. And so on this occasion, I knew it was a Chinese funeral, and I knew I've been doing this such a long time. The grave, the plots for the Chinese were way down the other end of the cemetery. It was a long walk. And so, you know, on the walk, so I was talking to the funeral director, you know, female, and I asked, how long have you been in the industry? She said, oh, a long time. And she says, who's going to retire soon? So look, it's a long walk. Have you got any interesting ghost stories? So she could share some ghost stories for me. She said, oh, yeah, yeah, lots of them. Well, tell me one. So I can use it for material in my next talks. <laughs> and she said, no, she was honest. She said, this actually happened. Have you ever seen any ghosts? Oh, you know, lots of them. It's just part of the job. And she said, sometimes when she's working late in the funeral home, because around the back of the funeral home, there they keep the corpses in the coffins and actually in the freezer, you know, to keep them cold. 
You've got to preserve them. And she said, sometimes at night time, because she, she knows all the people who've died, sometimes they have to do the embalming. And sometimes she sees them walking past her office. So are you scared? She said, no, I'm not scared, I see it often. What do you do? <laughs> and she said, as soon as I see them, recognize that you know, one of the corpses in the back, the ghost walking past, I tell them, get back in your box. <laughs> the way they say that, it cracks me up. But anyway, she said the most scary of the ghost, what was the most scary one? She said that in that funeral industry, I'm sure they do the same here in UK, that in the hearse, the hearse is sometimes used two or three times a day. And after every buried or cremation, when it comes back to the funeral parlour, they employ one person to actually clean it inside and out after every funeral. So it's spotless for the next customers. And that's our only job. He said in her funeral parlour, one of these people, they've been employed her a long time, cleaned it inside first of all, making sure that it was, everything was spotless, and then closed the doors. And as he was trying to clean the outside, he noticed the inside steamed up. There was like a mist on the inside of the windows, which was weird. But then, handprints appeared from the inside on the windows. Something inside was trying to get out. I thought that was really cool. <laughs> I'd never heard that before. <laughs> but anyway, how did I get onto this one? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, before the cradle to, to the grave, not get anywhere, okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's right, yeah, where are, you, where are you getting to? So the most important thing is actually being here. Being here and understanding this moment. That little meditation I gave last night about um, now's the most important time. Whatever's in front of you is the most important thing in the whole world. And be kind. And I promised actually that I was going to say more about what I mean by caring instead of curing. And it's a powerful meditation because anytime, any place, no matter what you're experiencing, you can practice it. And in fact, it's really worth practicing. So you understand what's, what is this like when you're in pain? Instead of running away, <laughs> scared, instead of sort of uh, trying to block it out, what is this? Understand it, because it's important. Give it importance. Not to try and get rid of it, but to understand it. And that came from uh, one of these young men, because I've been a monk a long time, some of these people have grown up with me. You, know, you see them when they're little kids, you bless them when they're, they're born, and you, you just give them advice that when they get to school, and then, then when they go through their puberty, and just uh, tell them, I, I used to give this advice, but I get into trouble for it. But anyway, here it comes. I told the people in, especially in Malaysia, Singapore, they said, look, if you're looking for a partner in life, especially, you know, please excuse me, the Chinese culture, said, girls always marry a poor guy. Don't marry a rich one. Because if you marry a poor guy, then you can go off on retreat, and you're very ha knowledgeable, happy, that, you know, your husband back in Singapore will be fine. Because the rich ones, they have their, their mistresses but no mistress will go close to a poor man. So if you marry a poor guy, you have nothing to worry about. And, should I carry on like this? I'm going to get in more trouble. <laughs> okay, here we go, I already started. <laughs> I say, guys, don't marry a beautiful woman. Beautiful woman, when you go off on retreat or go overseas for business, you never know what she might be up to, but marry an ugly girl and you're happy forever. So I told all these women in Singapore who spent a lot of time doing makeovers. I said, no, no, go to the ugly parlour. They've got an ugly parlour instead of a beauty parlour. <laughs> in other words, just be yourself and don't try and change yourself. And this is actually where we get to the curing or caring. Because one of the, this little fellow grew up with, very smart fellow, worked hard, became a doctor. 
and after just one the first year as a uh, what's it called a registrar in the hospital that um, he came to me and said he wants to resign he can't do the job any longer why? he said that morning he had a tragedy this uh, young lady 23-24 some complications he hadn't picked up that she died on his watch and he wasn't to blame even more experienced doctors would probably not have noticed what the real problem was but she died he said he had to go and tell her husband this was a couple just in the, in the beginnings of love just they were devoted to one another and he had to tell her so tell her other husband that the woman he depended upon the woman he chose to spend the rest of his life with had died if that wasn't hard enough to do to tell him also his two children had no mummy they'd gone, it was unexpected he said that was just like three knives into his heart it hurt him so much he said I don't think I could ever do this job ever again if that happens again I just don't know what I could do so I'm going to choose another career and that's where I told him this caring and curing business he said if you think your job as a doctor is to cure people you've missed the point and you'll face this same uh, the same agony many many times when you're unable to cure anybody and you'll feel a failure as a doctor and especially you feel responsible when you have to tell the loved ones that their relation has died but instead I said your job is not to, to cure your job is to care if you make caring your main goal as a doctor you never need to be a failure it doesn't matter what the outcome is if you're caring for somebody they will know if they survive or they die they've been cared for and the family knows they've been cared for it changes just the whole dynamic of medicine of psychiatry, of psychology of nursing, of any place where there's therapy don't try ever to cure make caring your priority then number one you never need to feel a failure and number two you'll have far more success in helping people but we try to cure instead of caring which means that many many people get sicker and sicker caring is more important than curing so instead of trying to change your husband to cure him of his bad habits care for him then his bad habits will change instead of trying to cure your mind of its defilements care for your mind and then it changes wonderful thing happens spent some time trying to deal with addiction people have all sorts of addictions in our modern world whether it's addictions to, to drugs, to alcohol, to pornography to... Oh, why? instead of trying to cure that person you always advise to care for them care first of all because if you ever talk to people with any types of addiction self-harm or whatever it's always because they have a very low self-esteem they don't like themselves, they feel they're a failure they don't feel that they need to be rehabilitated until they we learn how to care we'll never be able to cure why caring is more important and a good example of that 
in monastic system, many of you have seen some of the monasteries here in the UK, that we have a period of training, the Anagarika it's called, the Eight Preceptor. One of those rules is an Eight Preceptor is not eating in the evening, in the afternoon or at night time. And one of these Eight Preceptors in monastery in Perth where I was the boss, came to see me early in the morning saying he hadn't slept all night. Why? Because he'd broken one of the rules. What have you done? And he said, last night I was hungry. I snuck into the kitchen. I made myself a sandwich and I ate it. I feel terrible. <laughs> no, guilt is a stupid thing, isn't it? You ate a sandwich. Okay. They're not going to sort of throw you out of the monastery. And I told him, look, okay. Now there's all these other allowables you can have in the evening. You don't have to go in there and, and make a sandwich in the middle of the night and feel guilty. And there's cheese and chocolate and that sort of stuff. And you can always have more during the day, you know, lunchtime. So, okay, I gave him all the advice. Okay, great, you told me. Now you can go. And this young man said, no, that's not good enough. I need to be punished. I need a penance. If you don't punish or give me a penance, I'll do the same again, he said. He put me on the spot. How can you deal with somebody who refuses to be forgiven? <laughs> so, I just that morning been reading this book about the history of Australia and what they used to do to people sent to Australia the first time if they made any mistakes. They used to flog them with a whip. And it's a brutal punishment with a cat of nine tails. So, I looked at him and told him, right, you want a punishment, do you? I will give you a traditional Australian punishment. I will give you 50 strokes of the cat. And it's poor man. You know that Anna Garricka's wear white clothes? His face went more white than his clothes. <laughs> and his lips started to quiver. <laughs> you know, he really thought <laughs> that I was going to hit somebody. And then I explained to him what 50 strokes of the cat mean in a Buddhist monastery. <laughs> we had two cats at the time. Find one and stroke it. One, two, three. <laughs> Learn some compassion. Because compassion and kindness and care, <coughs> that includes forgiveness. <coughs> It includes forgiveness, and that heals you. A lot of time, people who are addicted just need some kindness, reassurance, they're okay. Just going through a difficult time. And that means that with care and kindness, they will have someone to help them through the addictions, rather than someone to tell them they're bad, they have to do something, they have to change. Curing comes after caring not before. So anyway, that's something which I've noticed such a long time. Care for something and it tends to heal. Try to cure it and it often gets worse. So you have these empress three questions, meditation, care for your default, care for your mind. Your poor old mind, I don't know why, it wanders off and has these stupid thoughts. <coughs> but one of my other uh, embarrassing but true and very revealing experiences was on my six rains retreat when I was in Thailand. And after five years as a monk, you were allowed, you basically got your basic training. You were allowed to wander wherever you wanted to in Thailand, carrying all your possessions with you. And it was so light had nothing left in the monasteries for safekeeping. And so I was really like a bird. No plans, no destinations. Whichever way you went, you can just choose when you went to any crossroads. Decide, where you, with no agendas, with no destinations, with no place you had to be free. You knew you'd get some food somewhere in the next village. Maybe not nice food, but some food to eat. 
And that's how I lived for a while. When it came to the rains retreat, I had to stay somewhere. And when I stayed somewhere, I decided to choose this beautiful monastery in the north of Thailand, high up in the mountains. So it was cool. And the, the people there supporting me, they weren't interested in meditation. They weren't interested in listening to talks. All they wanted to do was a monk to feed. That sounded good. <laughs> so I could just meditate all day and just they would feed me. But it was perfect conditions. It was also, I must admit, up in those mountain areas, I was right in the middle of a tea plantation for an English monk. This was like being reborn in heaven. <laughs> as much tea as I wanted whenever I wanted. Fresh as well. So, there I was, meditating and meditating and meditating. Have you ever had a wandering mind? <laughs> of course you have. My mind started to wander and wander and wander. And I tried it, no, come on, come back. But it didn't want to come back. And so it started to think and think and think. When I tried to stop it, it would think even more. It just you know, ordinary thoughts, first of all. But then it started getting into what I say these days is unmonkish thoughts. Started thinking of my old girlfriends. Now, now I was only saying, how old was I this time? About 28, 29. I wonder if she's still available. No, stop it, Ajahn Come on. <laughs> and all these fantasies. No, come on, I want to be a monk. The more I tried to stop this, the more they came in. And it really got tiring. Have you ever sort of tried to stop thoughts and they get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse? And, worse? <clears throat> and it got, the point was I didn't have anyone to talk to. I was in this monastery by myself. So one day it got to such a peak, really sort of tiring and embarrassing. And so I went to the big Buddha statue, bowed three times and asked for help. Inspiration, please. I'm going crazy. And then I had this thought, do a deal. The deal was this. And I'd watch my breath like a good monk for most of the day. But I set aside one hour every afternoon, 3 to 4 p.m., where I allowed my mind to think whatever it wanted to. Old romance, fantasies, weird stuff, anything went from 3 to 4 p.m. That would be my sexy time. <laughs> <laughs> Only thoughts, of course. So, I'm being honest with you, I'm a celibate monk, I'm a good monk obviously, so you know sort of uh, that what I say you know, is true. So, there I was. It was still a struggle. You watch your breath and then these thoughts would, like they bust down all the doors and the walls you built up and they come into you and you push them out and you start watching your breath again and it get worse and worse and oh, by 3 p.m. I was so exhausted. And then I just, Extended my legs and my heart just leant back because I was really physically tired with all the mental exertion. Okay, now whatever thought you want to do, mind, anything goes at all. I will not be embarrassed, I won't stop you. This is the time you can do whatever you want. You know what happened next? There's no exaggeration. This, this blew my mind. How on earth can this happen? For the next hour, I could watch every breath without missing one. Easy. This is weird. I was trying to keep these thoughts out and they were getting stronger. And then <coughs> when I let go, oh, you do whatever you like, Mike. Then my mind was very happy to watch every breath. I learned a lot about psychology on that one hour. What I learned was your mind wanders and thinks so much because you try and stop it. You're controlling. Control freak. Give you an example. Suppose that when you go home, a friend calls you up. Are you free this afternoon? You say yes. Oh great. Please come to this coffee shop. 
I know you don't like coffee, but I like coffee, so please come to this coffee shop. And I know you don't like uh, too much uh, milk or lactose, but they make these incredibly delicious um, lattes, so I'm going to order you a latte. And I know that you don't really like to have uh, too much gluten, but they have amazing gluten, gluten-enhanced muffins. And I know you're a Buddhist or meditator, you like talking about all this meditation stuff, but I like talking about politics, and politics is really important, much more important than spirituality. So we'll talk about politics, we'll sit in the back, because that's where I like to sit. If somebody actually invites you out and tells you what you're going to eat, where you're going to, what you're going to drink, where you're going to sit, what you're going to talk about, what would you do? Would you like to be with someone like that? So in my simile, they, were, they told you, uh, they, you answer them, say, oh, I'm terribly sorry, I just remembered I've got a dentist appointment this afternoon. I'll maybe next time. So you hang up, and to keep your precepts, you quickly call your dentist and make an emergency appointment. <laughs> and after, <laughs> after making the appointment with the dentist, then someone else rings you up. Say, hi, it's, you know, are you free this afternoon? Actually, no, I've got the dentist appointment. Oh, that's such a shame because you've got this beautiful tea shop. I know how much you like tea. And they have this amazing healthy food. I know how much you like that. And you've always been telling me about this meditation. Actually, I'm interested. Can you tell me something about it? And I know you always like to sit in the front. I usually like to sit in the back. But if you like to sit in the front, I'd like to sit there with you and talk about what you're interested in. Eat what you like. Drink what you recommend just to be with you. What would you do? In my simile, the girl sort of said, okay, I'm catching the dentist appointment, I'll see you there in five minutes. And you spend all afternoon there, because you're with a friend. Who doesn't tell you what to do, who cares for you, and wants to understand how you feel. Now, that simile, is about you and your meditation. Sometimes we're just such control freaks, we tell our mind, this is what you have to do. You're going to watch your breath. Long breath, you do it this way. Or short breath, you're going to scan your body. Do it this way. You're going to start from your head, and the white jump bum says from your feet. You're going to do it, whatever. It's a control freak, telling you what to do and how to do it. Instead, we look at our mind with kindness. We care for our mind, rather than trying to cure it. Young mother in Perth, her, what was it, five-year-old, six-year-old son, was very upset at his mother one day. Threw a tantrum and said, Mummy, I don't love you anymore, I'm leaving. Only five, six years of age. Now this was one wise mummy. She said, you want to leave? Yeah, I, can't, I don't love you anymore. Okay, darling, I will help you pack. I know maybe some of you mothers have felt like that. You want to do that. But this mum, she actually did it. They went to the kid's bedroom, packed the little suitcase with all the important things of life, like the Spider-Man suit and the lucky underpants and the whatever else it had there. And he said, before you go, darling, you know, you need something for lunch to start off your life outside the house. So I made a, a favourite sandwich and put it in a little brown paper bag. And there at the front door of the house, kissed the son and said, bye-bye, have a wonderful life. And off the kid went. Walked down the garden, the little path, opened the gate and turned left. Left home for the first time. What happened next? He got about 100 feet down the road, maybe 150. I was homesick. Turned, <laughs> turned around, <laughs> went through the garden gate, down the path. Mum hadn't moved from the front door of the house. Welcome home, darling. That was emotional intelligence. You let the kid go, it won't go far, and came back again. Instead of having a tantrum and an argument which would last all day, let it go. And it comes back again. 
So that's with your mind if it wants to wander off. Pack a, sa pack a suitcase and give it some sandwiches. Off you go mind, have a wonderful time. See you when you get back. <laughs> it's true. That's what happens. Who wants to go away from someone who's so kind and loving? The mind comes back again. Or the breath comes back in, whatever angle you want to look at it at. So your mind doesn't wander off. So kind of, if you really want to worry, you've got an important thought. Okay, do your important thought or fantasy. When you're ready, when you want to come back, I'll be here waiting for you. That's called caring. And that creates this beautiful, after a while your mind gets very still. Very peaceful. Very profound. Effortlessly. I love that word, effortlessly. Because life is such an effort. Sometimes, oh, just people think talking to others is the most difficult thing to do. I'm just having a chat with you. I make it up as I go along. I'm just trying to sort of connect with you. And so it's just like having a nice chat over coffee with one of you. It's all giving puppet talks are. Which means there's no anxiety whatsoever. But it's also, with this type of method of meditation, you look at yourself and you look at others, you get great insights into how these things work. One of the things I noticed, if you want to move because the sun's in your face, please, you know, please move. Okay. Very good. Sorry? I'll finish soon. Ah, oh, yeah. I'll just stop the clock. Psst, lose my powers. <laughs> turn it backwards. <laughs> if I want my lunch. Really? Oh, that's... That's really important. <laughs> so now look at this much, which I keep spare aside. So anyway, uh, yeah. So where was I? Oh, with uh, the cut. Oh, the insights which come. Because when you actually you do get some stillness, and it's, again, stillness is the translation for samadhi. Somebody concentration. So I mentioned this at the beginning, but somebody asked, can you please remind us, think stillness. And if you think stillness, you're getting far closer to what the Buddha meant. Not sort of concentration. Doesn't make any sense to me at all. And even Ajahn Chah, stillness was the way. He used this, oh, just a quick, which, which simile should I use? Okay. Ah. Yes. <laughs> now this was a, the stillness. He gave this simile which I never understood for years. And it was, he said his monastery was a mango, was a mango orchard. And those mangoes, they were, they were planted by the Buddha himself. I thought, this is one crazy monk. There's no mango trees in Wat Bapong, his monastery. And if they were planted by the Buddha, they'd be dead by now. He said, no, no, they're still there. And all of those mango trees have got so many mangoes on them. They're ripe, they're delicious. But, he said, there's only one way to get those mangoes from the trees planted by the Buddha. You can't climb up the tree. You can't get a ladder. You can't throw up a, a, a branch or a twig or a rock to get those mangoes to come down. There's only one way. You have to sit under the mango tree, perfectly still, and hold out your hand, and a mango will fall. Such gomayang. Remember what gomayang means? B.S. Have you ever tried that, sitting under a mango tree? How long do you have to sit before something falls? If it does fall, where's it going to fall? On your head, that's why. <laughs> but that was so wise. After a while, being still. Opening up your hand, it's kindness. And things happen. Okay, I'm going to put this last simile in. This is the uh, still forest poor, you can read that in the book. Actually, you can read this one in the book too, but this is one of my favourites to finish off this part of, of uh, the talk. 
This is the story of the donkey and the carrot. In ancient times, we would use donkey carts to pull goods and even people. Sometimes you see them in, in countries like India, or even well, actually mostly India. Now there's one thing about a donkey. They are so stubborn. They still have the saying in English, as stubborn as a donkey. Now, if a person takes a stick and tries to hit the donkey, will the donkey move? No. But you don't use a stick to hit the poor donkey. You tie the stick to the donkey's neck. So the front of the stick is about two foot in front of the donkey's head. On the end of the stick you tie a string, on the end of the string you tie a carrot. If the donkey is in Malaysia, you will tie a durian, because they love durians over there. <laughs> what do you put in England? Apple? No, carrot. Carrot's good, carrot's good, okay. So, you put a carrot on the end of the stick. And the donkey sees the carrot on the end of the stick. What does the donkey do? He likes carrots. So he moves towards the carrot. When the donkey moves towards the carrot, the stick moves, the string moves, and the carrot moves. So the carrot is always about two foot in front of the donkey. He can see it, he can smell it, but he just can't reach it. Even if he runs and chases, still it's too far ahead. Does that feel like your life? Happiness, security, perfect relationship, perfect health, enough money to live comfortably, enough uh, helpers uh, what's it, uh, to, to make sure Gaia House is successful. Sometimes it's almost there. But then what happens? It moves further away from you. Enlightenment, you can see it, you can smell it. And you go towards it and it moves away. What's going on? So, that donkey has been running after the carrot, never catches it. But, these days, donkeys, they learn the Dhamma. And they learn from the Dhamma how to catch the carrot. And when you know it, it's so simple. No matter why I've been chasing this carrot all along. So what you do? You've already been chasing the carrot as hard as you can. The donkey runs really hard after the carrot. Still it's two foot in front of him, but then the donkey stops. Let's go. Does nothing. Practices stillness. Once the donkey stops, what does the carrot do? It swings further away from the donkey until it's four foot in front of the donkey's mouth, never been that far away before. And the donkey has faith and confidence in the teacher. He just remains still, even though the carrot is so far away. And then the carrot starts swinging towards the donkey. The donkey just sits, stands there, just like you sit there. Just stands there. And soon the, the carrot's in its normal place, two foot in front of the donkey's mouth, at this time coming at top speed towards the donkey's mouth until it swings so close to the donkey's mouth, has to remember one more thing. It's not just stillness. The other thing is kindness. Until the carrot comes so close to the donkey's mouth, the donkey remembers. Carrot, the door of my mouth is open to you. <laughs> and that's how the donkeys catch carrots. That's how people get limiters, jhanas, enlightenment. Stop chasing it. Stand still. Sit still. And see the carrot come towards you. But don't forget the compassion, otherwise... Have you ever seen how big donkey's teeth are? Mm -hmm. And I visualise this carrot coming and banging against the donkey's teeth and going out again. <laughs> Miss the opportunity. Compassion is also important. Okay, and now I'm going to have compassion to my tummy for lunch. So what are we doing? Are we doing the meta meditation? That's a closing talk. So. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, do you want to stretch? Okay, stretching over, now bad. <laughs> yeah, have a stretch. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.